The Athletic. The Phil Hay Show. Welcome to the show. This Athletic podcast brought to you with The Square Ball. Dan and Michael with you from The Square Ball and, of course, from The Athletic, Phil Hay. Uh, you can subscribe to The Athletic right now. Current offer is a pound a month for six months. Theathletic.com forward slash leads pod. Some stuff on Stuart Dallas in there, which we're going to talk about today, Phil. Yes, long read on him um, after his injury on Saturday. Really nasty injury. Um, some thoughts in that piece from Robert Snodgrass, who had something pretty similar. Danny Higginbottom, who broke his femur when he was a teenager and also a knee surgeon specialist, giving us some detail on, on what's actually happened. Well, we'll get into some of that in part two of the show. Theathletic.com forward slash leads pod to read that on The Athletic. First, a look back at, at the previous week. And can you remember a worse weekend in a number of years? Phil. Daniel. <laughs> Daniel. Daniel. Michael, Michael, Michael. <laughs> I think you two both predicted we'd get something from this game, didn't you? Look, I, I, I got completely bullied into that. And as I said afterwards, <laughs> I can't believe that I've, I've actually predicted this. I think I speak for a lot of other people when I say I'm as concerned as I've been this season now. They are in real trouble and they have enough games to get out of it they are going to have to get themselves out of it. And I think if The weekend told us one thing, and I think we'd all realise this anyway, but if it told us one thing, it's that the ineptitude of other teams is not going to keep Leeds up. Now, they are going to have to get results from these last four games. They're going to have to outperform Burnley and Everton. It is going to be very, very tight. I don't think, from Leeds' perspective, the City game itself actually changed very much. None of us expected Leeds to win that. I know you predicted it, but I think... I mean, that was very much heart-ruling. Yeah, yeah, no, yeah. absolutely. And and also, that I still feel that there will come a result somewhere in the running between City and Liverpool that will change the top of the table, but clearly not Ellen Road on Saturday. What made the difference was Burnley getting out of jail down at Watford, nicking that late win, and then Everton beating Chelsea on the Sunday, which made it the, the worst weekend possible in terms of results and it has put the table in a, in a position where Leeds are greatly at risk and, and the, the odd thing about Leeds is that there have been a couple of junctures very recently where it's felt as if they had enough breathing space it felt as if they were almost there and, and had the sort of gap that they'd be looking for particularly after Watford away and I know that Marsh said you know in the period the, the long period before the Palace game the table would, would tighten up and I think we all agreed with that but I don't think many of us expected it to tighten up to this extent and to a large degree, it's Burnley's form more than anything else that has done this. They have put results on the board just when they needed it. And they're they're in control of this suddenly. You know, they're above Leeds, they're clear of Everton. It's become very, very tense. But it's not over yet. That's no, one of the things absolutely. I've been saying this week on our shows is that although it's felt pretty bleak this weekend, I'm trying to remember that there are still four games to go for us. And it is, it's not within our gift to dictate the outcome of the final table, but to do our absolute level best and try and uh, and grab something from this because Lord only knows we need to. Well, I was on the the Athletics Football Podcast with Paddy Boyland, um, our Everton writer, and Andy Jones, who covers Burnley. And they were both saying that at points this season, they've gone through that emotion of thinking, we're down here. Paddy said after Everton uh, went to Burnley and lost, they went into the press room after the game at Tough Moor. And the overriding feeling was Everton have, Everton have gone here. They're, they're not going to recover from this. And Andy was saying that if you go back earlier in the season, the the you know there were stages where Burnley were so far behind and struggling to get points on the board that it, it kind of felt inevitable. So I think when you're in the mix, you always go through that emotional state of one weekend thinking it's looking good, it's it's all fine, another weekend feeling as if you're the team, you know, that's got bullets coming at you. I think last weekend it was Leeds turn for that. Probably I think for the first time 
this season. I, I don't think there's been another weekend, another point where any of us have, have thought this is actually, you know, this is falling apart, that they're not going to have enough here. But it, on Saturday, it was hard to feel like the pendulum hadn't swung quite dramatically. Although you did see in the reaction of the crowd that I think people understood that maybe it wasn't uh, deserving of a 4-0 and that people understood that this game will not define the outcome of the season, although obviously getting no points doesn't help. The crowd this season, seriously, I, I know some people get tired of hearing journalists and, and other people banging on about the atmosphere and this thing of, oh, the, the crowd were great even though they, they got beat. I mean, I remember joking with other people a couple of years back about Huddersfield desperately trying to say, you know, despite this 5-0 defeat, the fans sung all the way to the end and he thought, well, that's going to keep you up, isn't it? And Hearts and Hibs were playing in the, the Scottish Cup semi-final a couple of weeks back and Hibs were very much of the opinion that, that they won the singing contest on the day, but, you know, on, on the 21st, we'll be at Hamden, they'll be watching Grandstand, you know, it's like that, it's that, that kind of thing. But I can't remember ever really seeing what we saw in the last 10 minutes at, at Ellen Road. You have games from time to time, you know, like cup games or league games that go horribly wrong where at the end, you might as well just have 10 minutes of defiance or whatever else and, and, and what does it matter? But the difference with this is that the jeopardy is very, very real and Leeds are, in, it, Leeds are in real danger. And those are circumstances where a crowd can easily turn and it can become very toxic and, and very poisonous and where support and faith and, and belief can drain. And the, there was just that feeling in the last 10 minutes of absolutely everybody in the stadium realising that if we don't stick with this and, you know, if we aren't together on this, if we're not side by side, then we're, we're going to go. If that aspect of it isn't working, the crowd is it's like the one thing that has functioned for Leeds all season in such a big way. I i don't think I've ever seen the crowd at Ellen Road be as good as it's been this season, considering the results and some of the performances and, and I guess the the disappointment of everything being an upward curve under Bielsa for three years and then suddenly this season when you're back in the ground, it isn't like that. The patience and the tolerance with it has been outstanding and you can't buy that. You really can't. You're lucky to have a crowd like that. And the chances are it can't stay like that if, if Leeds don't get themselves out of this. You know, at some point there's going to be a moment of reckoning if it doesn't pick up. But the one thing that you cannot point the finger of blame at this season is the crowd. I guess the one, the, the counter argument to that is that the one big thing we have achieved in the last, uh, well, 30 years since winning the title is getting promotion back to the Premier League, which was done without a crowd. <laughs> Funny it, that. It was, but I'm... Um, Totally unconvinced that the return of supporters has been the factor this mm. season. I just I think there are a lot of factors involved in this, a lot of things that have gone wrong, and I, I don't think you could point the finger at, at one person, you know, to explain why Leeds are fourth from bottom and, and at risk. But I don't think they could have asked for any more at Ellen Road. I really don't. I found that quite moving actually, the big marching on together that happened at, at full time, just as they were doing the lap of appreciation. And it, it made me think that was the first moment when I thought, Do you know what, we'll be all right no matter what happens here. This is the heart and soul of Leeds. It's not the manager or the board of directors or even the players to a certain extent. It's it's what happens around us there on the on the terraces that, that really counts. I think that's why as a club, you never want to lose touch with your core support. You never want to lose touch with your ethos and, and your soul because as soon as you start to become too corporate and too, I don't know if global's the right word, but as soon as you as soon as you start to branch out and, and I guess to to prioritize people who are new to the club or people who've never really had that affinity with the club over the people who do, then you risk all that going. And and I, I do feel that I don't really think this necessarily applies to clubs in the lower leagues. The clubs in the lower league with smaller crowds 
admittedly, but very, very loyal and dedicated and, and long-term support. But as a, as you get further up the, the division, the divisions, the, the pyramid, it's hard to find many grounds and many fan bases that are more, I guess, authentic than what you get at Leeds. And you never, ever want to lose that. And I think, again, Saturday was a good example of why not. And I think in terms of losing touch with your, your core support, I think that's why the NFTs on Sunday night felt a little bit ill-timed. Yeah, the timing was weird. I, I don't know why you would choose then to put it out. Some of the terminology used in the, the actual piece itself, you know, the drop, it seems to me that if you were sitting around brainstorming about what to put in it, somebody might have said, is that a good idea? Is that the best way to, to term it? The raising of money for humanitarian support in Ukraine is a good thing. Uh, and they did actually make quite a lot of money pretty quickly from it. More than anything, it's the NFT aspect of it. And I don't know what it is at the moment, but everywhere, you know, Twitter, particularly online, but NFTs and crypto, it's just, the creep of it is just insidious. It's like people constantly telling you that this is a good thing and, you know, people want NFTs and people want to to get into to cryptos. And it's clearly not for me. Um, and I, I wouldn't want to tar everybody with the same brush, but some of the people I see going on about crypto on Twitter in a really positive way are, as we would say in Scotland, absolute strokers, as far as, <laughs> as, far as I can tell. And the, and, and the whole the, the whole thing, it just, it just feels like Emperor's New Clothes. And I can't help feeling that if you're raising money for Ukraine, there are far better ways to do it the, the, the day after with actual t-shirts the shirts but, but that, that's it isn't it that's just, it. just do yeah. that and it's easy it's yeah. an open goal then. absolutely anyway back to the game itself did we deserve a 4-0 I don't think we did no I don't think so um, City deserved to win it no question you know there, there was a difference there was a, a golf I, I did feel as if they had gears they could have gone through if they needed to and if you're being totally honest as well there was that spell in the first half I mean it's, the, the game started off pretty clear game plan which was that Leeds were going to sit back you'd be compact, um, sit deep, which they did to good effect, but obviously conceded from a set piece and then everything has to change. And, and once they pushed further forward, they did ruffle City for 20 minutes before halftime and, and it was a, a difficult period of the game. And even Guardiola said afterwards, you know, that I don't think that was a 4-0 defeat. You know, I think the scoreline the score probably did flatter them. But after halftime, it was very difficult for Leeds to lay a glove on them and it, it very much felt like it was it was going to go their way, which which it deserved to... It was a better performance than, certainly defensively, I think, than the, the 7 0 at the Etihad. And I didn't think in any way Leeds were, were disgraced, but it's not difficult to see the golf, is it? Did you like the formation? I was quite impressed by how that was executed. But like you say, as soon as you concede from a set piece, you're like, well, what was the point? <laughs> yeah. And, and again, they've got this plan, it's set up, and then Liam Cooper injures his knee in the warm up. And Cooper is somebody who is going to make a difference to set pieces. Cooper has been very good, I think, since he's come back. I think he has made a difference. I always think Leeds look more organised and, and more in control defensively when he's on the pitch. So you lose him. I think you can debate whether Cleek for Cooper was the right way to go or whether they might have turned to Creswell. I suppose that's that's up for argument. But that kind of unsettles it slightly and then the goal does come from a set piece and suddenly you're, you know, you're kind of 10 minutes into the game and you've got to change and you've got to adapt your tactics. And I'm absolutely certain that the, the idea would have been keep this as tight as you can for as long as you can and then start to get into it and start to start to use the ball when you get it, start to take your chances. And when it comes to taking your chances, how much better do you get against City after a few minutes than the situation Rodrigo was in and doesn't look up, doesn't see Rafinha, doesn't do the right thing in the end? It's, it's just that is just absolutely critical at this stage. You've got to, you've got to make the most of positions like that. 
it's not to say that City wouldn't have won the game anyway, but it would have put them under pressure. And we're at the point of the season now, particularly with Liverpool not faltering, where I think there will come a moment where City feel pressure. I mean, we're recording before their Champions League game against Real Madrid, but if Real Madrid happened to win that, then that leaves City with one trophy to go for, um, which is right on the line. So, you know, it, it is possible to make them wobble, I think. Um, and it is possible to, to play on that. But you kind of knew on Saturday that if they got the first goal, it was going to be an away win. What do you reckon to the role of both Phillips and Rafinha in this setup and Marsh's use of them generally? It doesn't feel like we're seeing the best of the two of them. No, and it's been on my mind this week with the way that the table is that it seems to me that one of the keys now is for him to start making sure that his big players are delivering. You know, his big players are being given the best part, best chance to deliver. I think this is where you need major, major performances. You know, in the way that Everton have been getting it from Richarlison latterly. Leeds need it from Rafinha. They, they need it from Phillips. The team again was kind of knocked out of shape on Saturday by the injury to Dallas. And we then had Rafinha at right wing back, which was never going to get him into the game a great deal. I actually thought before the Dallas injury that, he and Rafinha had been linking up really well on the right. There'd been quite a quite a presence there after City's first goal that was promising a bit. So to my mind, you do not want to get through the last, and, and I don't think it'll happen. I think it was a tactical thing because of the circumstances on Saturday, but you don't want to get into a situation where through the last four games, you've got Rafinha sitting in, in a back five. I mean, it's just no use that at all. And with Phillips, we touched on this last week about the fact that he's now got a different role in a two to what he had in a one. And there were points in the second half where it almost felt to me actually like whether this was intentional or whether it was just the players reverting to type that it kind of moved back a bit more towards the position he'd been in under Bielsa and what he'd been doing under Bielsa where he was more isolated in front of the back four, a bit more time on the ball, a bit more chance to, to spread it around. But I don't think we've seen the best of him at all since he's come back. And again, he's the sort of player that you would be you would be banking on really, wouldn't you, to, to turn it on and turn it on in a big way just as Leeds need it. I mean, it goes back to the point that we need goals and we need to win, don't we? Yeah. And do we give ourselves the best chance of doing that with Rafinha at right wing back? Although having him out wide seemed to work a little bit and they not, gave it gave him the chance to get on the ball a bit. Not at, not at right wing back, but I, I still I still would have him as a right winger. I, I still think, you know, that's where you can, can get a lot out of him. And I think where some thought maybe needs to be given is what's going on in the middle and how do you build a team and create a team now with what you've got that does look more dangerous and does look like scoring more goals. See, one of the problems with this team, I feel, this season is that between the injuries and the strength of the squad, the the size of it, the, the kind of impact of recruitment, which hasn't been great, you've lost continuity and you no longer look at it and feel like there are match winners jumping out all over the pitch. It just doesn't feel like that. It, it seems to me that the team has kind of lost its structure and because of that, it's kind of lost its confidence and, and its reliability. I don't know whether this would be the time to give Gilhart a run. Something tells me that if, if Bamford is going to be fit for the last couple of games, he's going to be needed. Um, and there's a chance he will be fit for those. He's, he he was due to be back out on the grass this week and we'll find out when we speak to, to Marsh before the Arsenal game what position he's in. But I think if, you know, if, if there's any thought of taking a gamble on him, you wouldn't do if Leeds were safe. There would be no point in, unless he was 100% good to go. But if... If they're not safe, then you sort of think if he's got a couple of goals in him, then it has to be done. What do you think it is about Gellhart that has meant first Bielsa and now Marsh don't seem that keen to use him? Because when when we do see him, he looks brilliant. 
And it's not like he's we're having to push aside a striker who's doing well up there. We've had Dan James and Rodrigo both looking fairly mediocre. Yeah, it's it's a good point. I mean, one of the problems for Gilhart has been injury. You know, it has it kicked in just as um, just as Marsh arrived or or early early after Marsh was appointed. But you're right for all the talent there and and all the ability. Bielsa was never really pushed into to starting him regularly, um, and there was a lot of arguing about you know how much Gilhart should have been coming off the bench when he was a substitute. Likewise, he has played under Marsh. You know, we have seen him and and he has been involved, but. We asked um, asked Marsh about Dan James last week before the City game. Why is it that James has been played there when not really any goals in his game and doesn't look like a nine? And, and by Marsh's own admission, has said, you know, this isn't my position. And he he talked about his, his influence pressing and the, the difference that that kind of made. I think you need to be very careful that in these last four games, you don't prioritise anything over winning games, scoring goals, winning games. It feels to me like there might come a point where they do have to start going for broke again. And 20 years old on Wednesday, Joffy's still a very young man, so hopefully a lot of... Uh... Very young man and loads of loads and loads of, of potential. Um, really, really good player. But if if you need goals at this stage, you know, he, he does score them. What do you think of Marsh's reaction at full time, the uh, the fist pumping? Because a few people have said, that looks a little bit silly. Other people have said, bit of a storm in a teacup. Where do you sit on this one? Yeah, I, th- I think in the heat of the moment, and if you were inside the ground, it was kind of weird because it was a 4-0 defeat and there was a bit of a, I don't know if you call it a lap of honour, but, you know, players going around the pitch, and players do tend to go around the pitch at Ellen Road regardless of the result. It's not a place where they, they disappear down the tunnel and, and hide. But it did feel like the end of a game that they'd won. That was what was so strange about the, the back end of it. I don't know if Marsh will look at that and think it was maybe slightly over the top. I think he could have worded his answer better than saying, you know, this is a loss on paper, but it look, but it feels like a win. You know, it feels to me like a win. It is a 4-0 defeat, and that's what, what's on paper. That is what's in, in the ether as well. But I think I, I do understand the point he was making that there are games where you can get battered 4-0 and come away feeling totally, totally demoralised. It didn't really feel like that on Saturday. And if I'm being honest, I think the, the negativity that's come out of the weekend is purely down to results elsewhere. It's not the City game. There were, were five games unbeaten before Saturday and we all thought they would lose to City because most clubs do. But it's the fact that everything else is, has gone against them and that has just made people twitch. You do wonder how that atmosphere would have been if the Everton game had been ahead of ours instead and people were looking at looking at our result with the table as it is now. It might it might have altered slightly. I don't know. It's hard mm. to say. Just thinking about Marsh though, the, these little slips and stuff like the overtraining comment as well. He's giving people sticks to beat him with if this doesn't work out. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't envy, envy him coming in at this point. And if I was him, I'd feel slightly aggrieved that You've gone five games unbeaten and you've taken 11 points from that and you're still two points ahead of 18th place and they've got a game in hand. You know, in different circumstances, that might well have been enough, that run, to to kill the season and, and keep them safe. It's not as if the results have, have been poor. And I think in these circumstances, when everybody is on edge and the, the pressure is really intense, you are kind of prone to saying things that are either misinterpreted or interpreted in a way that you would rather that, that they want. As I say, I, I think... Saying that that felt like a win, as we sit now, I don't think any of us would say it felt felt like a win. But no doubt at all that the reaction was unusual. And, and as I said earlier, I I can't remember seeing that really in in those in those circumstances. It's normally getting beat like that and having a good sing. It's normally a bit sarcastic, isn't it? And and a bit well, what's there to lose? But that was different on Saturday. That was a, almost a case. It's almost a case of saying to anybody looking in, if you think you're going to see some white on white aggro here then think again 
Stuart Dallas then. We saw the, the horrible injury that happened against Man City at the weekend and you've done the, the long read on it on The Athletic, Phil. So shed a bit of light on, on who you've spoken to and what he's now facing. This is the guy, that the one player in the squad who felt indestructible, almost unbreakable. And we said this about Melier after the Wolves game, but it really is the season where injuries and you know the, the constant ailments have caught up with absolutely everybody. You feel as if Dallas is constantly ever-present in that team. But it's only when you look back through the stats that you realise to what extent. And you remember that um, Matthias Cleek did 92 league games back-to-back and we all said that that's absolutely extraordinary these days for that to happen when you have squad rotation and the sort of physical demands of that are quite hard to imagine. Dallas on Saturday was on a run of 121, game, 121 starts from 122 league games. So he's been there, really, without fail, Going back to the the final month of Bielsa's first season, he's he's never been never been shifted, and he plays well enough, I think, more often than not, to deserve his place. And quite clearly, from a coach's point of view, he's somebody you want in the team. And you know, this is a this is a proper street fight for Leeds now. And I can see Dallas. You know, you can see Dallas being a street fighter. You know, sort of guy who you would want involved in this running. But you know, on on Saturday, the far more attention was being paid to the the severity of the injury. And it is a bad one. It's a, a broken femur, a fractured femur, I should say. And if you actually ask about and hunt around for footballers who've broken or fractured the femur in the past, they're almost impossible to find. It, it very rarely happens. Stroke never happens. And I, I spoke to a knee surgeon down in the Midlands um, because this will be classed as a knee injury. It's, it was his knee that took the impact or, or thereabouts. And it was a knee surgeon, um, one of the top knee surgeons, and a guy called Andy Williams, who operates on a lot of Premier League players, who who led the operation on Dallas on on Monday. It is kind of the, the knee that's being looked at. But in order to break your femur, speaking to the surgeon in the Midlands, he said, "Look, normally people who break the femurs are taken out of car crashes. You know, it's, it's vehicle collisions, RTAs that that do this, and you do see it in cyclists as well because you can have horrible collisions on on your bike." But the impact needs to be extremely severe in order to do it. So that tells you that this is a, a really big deal for Dallas, that it's going to be a very long recovery period. And it's a, a major, major setback for a guy who doesn't deserve it and you know who, who people at Leeds have come to think the world of. I always go back to those years where with Dallas, you weren't quite sure where he was supposed to fit. You weren't quite sure what he was. And then in the end, he was just the player who fitted wherever Bielsa needed him to. It was the Derby playoff semi-final, wasn't it? The second leg at Ellen Road when he was one of the few players who just took that game by the scruff of the neck and we saw it almost like a different player. He almost like, it was the, the, the becoming the, the swan in front of your eyes, wasn't it? Yeah, the, ugly the, the only player who took it by the scruff of the neck, you know, best player on the night, best Leeds player on the night by a mile and was just a fixture forever after that. He missed like virtually everybody that hungover game at Derby um, at the end of the promotion season. But he has been a starter ever since and, and obviously he, he was taken off early at Everton because he, he injured I think he injured his calf but was back again the following game and when I interviewed Adam Forsher in January he said Dallas is one of these players who's always injured always injured but he always just plays through it you know and he said he won't mind me saying that he's forever got niggles and knocks and this that and the other they joke about this toe of his which seems to be I don't know hanging off or permanently sore or, or whatever else and he's played through for so long that it's just a, a bit of a bit of a standing joke but that on Saturday was really serious and you know there's no pretending that it was Grealish's fault you know it's Dallas who arrived late Dallas who caught him as, as the ball went away but it was a, a nasty nasty collision and it's done a lot of damage 
And it's left a shot in midfield as well from a football perspective because Marsh had been talking him up as a potential, what he calls a number six, like the holding midfielders to go alongside Calvin. Yeah, I think so. And we've seen him play there, there before, a definite option. And given that Forshaw isn't going to play now before the end of the season, you really do need alternatives there. I mean, it's that thing, isn't it? Of I don't know whether you would say that six is necessarily a round hole for a round peg when it comes to Dallas, but it feels to me like trying to play Robin Koch there or Matthias Clake is either moving one forward from where they'd rather be or moving one back from, from where they'd rather be. He is going to be missed. I don't think it's only his performances that will be missed. I think just having him around and him being in the mix, I would imagine, you'll have seen the picture of him on Twitter, I would imagine it'll be extremely difficult for him to actually be near most of the games because he's, you know, he'll be immobile. It'll be, it'll be very difficult for him to, to get around. I spoke to Robert Snodgrass about, he um, dislocated a kneecap. So slightly different injury, you know, different bone. But essentially... Is it just me who winces, by the way, every time you discuss these, oh, these injuries? Well, well I mean, it? it's, it's a different bone, so it's a different injury, but his class is a major knee injury and it's essentially in exactly the same place. And the big concern with both of these things is that, you know, not so much the bone as the ligaments, you know, what damage does it do to the ligaments? And I think Leeds are pretty hopeful that, that Dallas has avoided anything bad there. Although we'll, we'll get more from Marsh on this in, in a time frame, I would imagine later this week or some more strict time frame. Although I think it'll be... Without, without, you know, it's just me surmising from speaking to people, but I think it'll be a challenge for him to get back this side of Christmas. Um, it is going to be a, a fairly long recovery period. But Snodgrass said that when he dislocated his knee, it pretty much took out every ligament in his knee apart from the ACL. So he was told initially, you're looking at six months for your kneecap to recover. And then he went for surgery and he woke up and the surgeon, Andy Williams, said to him, look, it's going to be more like 12, or eight, 12 to 18 because we've got to repair and rebuild virtually all the ligaments in your knee. So if Dallas has avoided any of that, that's a bonus for him. If if he hasn't, then clearly it's, it's far more serious. But Danny Higginbottom as well, he, he messaged me actually and he said, I was reading about the, the fractured femur. Dallas is only the second player I've ever heard of who's fractured it and the first was me. And, and when he was 17 and, and at Manchester United, he was playing in a game where he went to clear the ball and the opponent went for it, kicked him rather than, um, rather than the ball struck his knee and he said he, he would have shattered his kneecap but because he was young and because of the kind of growth material in there it went up his femur and, and he got a what he called a horseshoe crack in his femur and he needed loads of screws in it and all that sort of stuff because it's a really big bone so when it breaks it's, it's very durable obviously because it is big but when it breaks it takes a long time to heal and it needs a lot of a lot of treatment so he was out for about six months but it, he said it was a it was a really really major thing and without wishing to heap misery upon misery here Phil if we do go down you would have expected Stuart Dallas to be one of the linchpins of of a, a Leeds United Championship side and so if it's looking like Christmas we're going to have to maybe look at further reinforcements then in, in midfield Well something tells me that Marsh would have seen him as a, an asset if Leeds stay up um, you know I think if you, when we speak to Marsh and we ask him I'm pretty sure he'll say that you know I think he'll still feel he's somebody that, that he could use in, in the Premier League he has a contract to 2024. He signed that last summer. So the good thing is that he does have security in that sense because clearly there's always a concern when you have a bad injury. I think, as Snodgrass said, that thought always goes through your head of, am I going to play again? You know, what's going to happen with this? And Andy Williams actually said to him, the surgeon, if you get back to any sort of level, then you'll have done well. And you know, Snodgrass said, that stuck in my head because he just thought, well, there's not actually anything I can do about that. You know, either I'm going to recover or... Or I'm not. What age was Snodgrass when, when this happened? It was 2014, so about eight years ago, which would make Snodgrass, I think, early 20s, mid 20s. 
he'd literally just moved from Norwich to Hull. It was first game of the season when he when he did it. It was his dad's seventieth birthday as well, and he said he was all set up for a massive party that night. But then, you know, it was um, it was off to surgery. But he he said he, even if you do make it back, the periods where the period of time that you're out is can be pretty soul destroying. Like he was talking about three sessions a day and getting out of rehab at seven eight at night and you know he's not moaning about the long hours because he said you know I know a lot of people work long hours but he said it, it's just massively massively repetitive you're constantly stinking of chlorine because you're in the pool it's absolutely no fun and I think that there is that question of once you return are you the same player as you were previously and Dallas has done so much for Leeds he really has an absolute bargain at the, the 1 million 1.3 that they paid from to take him from Brentford and, and actually like quite a few players um, particularly through the BLC era has, has got better as time's gone on Just before his 26th birthday Snoddy by the way Yeah so that yeah that so mid, mid-20s and I don't know actually if you spoke to a footballer whether they'd be whether it would be more of a worry in your mid-20s because you're only a short distance into your career or whether it's more of a concern as Dallas is you know 30-31 because you're starting to get into your, your later years but Tough guy. I have no doubt that we'll see him back. I think it'll just be time scale and it'll be a really, really long road. But he, I think, is going to be one that we'll be asking about constantly for the next six to nine months. My hope for Dallas is that his, his flexibility means he can hopefully find himself a new position, even if he's maybe, if he returns and he's not a fullback anymore, maybe he does slot into a more of a defensive midfield role and he can he can adapt to it. Whereas, you know, you get people like who Michael Owen, for example, when he relied on his pace and once that went, he kind of thought, well, what do you do now? Whereas I get the feeling Dallas can probably, he can probably find a slot for himself somewhere. You, you sell NFTs for your racing yard, <laughs> don't you? That's what you do. You, uh, yeah, you can't help but think at 31 when you're already what you would class as on the downslope of your career almost. When you, I know players play a lot longer and Dallas probably would have and probably will go on forever given the fitness of footballers today. But at that age, you're naturally going to be suspicious thinking, well, this could be it. This could be it. That's the the one thing in their favour though is that they're all in great condition. You know, physically and biologically, they're, they're in, in great shape. I mean, Higginbottom had that injury when he was 17. He went on to play about 400 times in, in his career. So it's by no stretch impossible to recover from it. I think it will be patience and time as much as anything. But from what I can gather, the, the operation went to plan and went as it was supposed to on Monday. So it's just the long road. I guess it's something like this. It's hard to judge at this stage, isn't it? Because you, so. you need to see how it'll heal over time. And hopefully it, there's a plan for it, but I guess things don't go to plan. How do you go about replacing someone like Stuart Dallas then? I'm not sure you can. I mean, can you? could you name me one player you've watched who's been as versatile as him? I've never seen him play up front, so I don't know if he could do that. And something tells me that you might not get too much of him out, too much out of him as a as a number nine. And he hasn't. <laughs> but you, pl- you imagine he'd say, well, "I'd have a crack at it." Yeah, well, yeah, no, <laughs> but he would do. Um, and I, I, I don't think I'd be sticking him in in goal. I think I think I'm just about taller than him, and, and nobody would see me as the the height of a height of a keeper. But I know he's not perfect in every position, but he can be good at left back. He can be good at right back. He can be good in midfield. He can be good out wide. It's so hard to think of anybody who's ever been as flexible as that. He's basically a 7 out of 10 player just about wherever he plays, isn't yeah. he? At we've, least. We've been re-watching the, the title win stuff from 91-92 and Gary Speed and that is probably about as near as you'll get to it. That he was left midfield as a natural, but then he was filling it left back. He was up front for games. He was he was kind of moved all over the place. And yeah. Because of his skill set and his application, just did a, a pretty good job absolutely everywhere. He changed as he got older as well, didn't he, Speed? You know, he, he kind of moved around and, and he, I always think looking at him, he looks like somebody who'd be intelligent enough and talented enough to, to fit in where you, you asked him to fit in. But 
he's a really, really big character as Dallas as well. I don't think you can underestimate the value of him behind the scenes. Everybody's spoken highly of him. In that respect, Bielsa did. Marsh has other people at the club. They think the world of him and I think the crowd do as well. And, you know, again, I think it was pretty hard to see that on Saturday. And what does it mean for, for left-back options, Junior Firpo, who is, well, still looking, should we say, questionable at the best of times? And, and Marsh has actually said, hasn't he, this week he's going to spend some time with Firpo? Yeah, I mean, I've actually written this week um, about why Leeds are in this position, what's gone wrong and, and everything else. And there's constantly a lot of talk about investment. You know, you will hear it said that they haven't invested, they haven't done enough. I don't think the question is actually investment per se. They have spent money. They have spent money since they were promoted. They haven't sold players to fund that. You know, there has been a, a fair amount of cash spent. I think the big thing is the impact of that investment. And you have to ask the question at this stage, have Furpo and Dan James made a material difference to the team? They're the two players who've come in. You know, I know Klassen signed as well, but he's essentially been on the bench. They're the two expensive signings, the two first team players that have been added. And the answer is no, they haven't. I was going to say, if you're going to spend 40 million last summer, I know we always talk with the benefit of hindsight. So, you know, that's that's the gift you can have, don't you? When you when you do an analysis like this, looking back on what's happened because you couldn't necessarily forecast it, but it doesn't feel that, that shrewd an investment. And that's that's no judgment. I mean, I'm unconvinced about Furpo, but Dan James, perfectly serviceable Premier League footballer. I just wonder whether that money might have better been allocated to a midfielder. And it's not hindsight either because we sat here when he signed and said, might do a job. Bielsa obviously loves him, but could probably do with a midfielder instead. Yeah. So it's not it's not a great mystery, is it? The whole central midfield issue. It's been there for was it something like nine transfer windows now. We've gone, I, we've gone through. I, I do like James. That's the thing. But he's at nine, isn't he? In the same way that Robin Koch hasn't played enough at centre back. And if you start to run through the the signings that they've made, no argument at all with the Rafinha deal. Brilliant signing that. But even now, you know, somebody like Rodrigo is trying to, still trying to find himself, you know, still trying to properly, properly nail down where it is that he's he's going to thrive. And as I say, I don't think it's fair or right to say that money hasn't been spent and they haven't haven't invested. I think January, not taking players in January was a big risk. And, and we did all say that we felt at that point that they, they did need bodies. You know, it, it seemed fairly, fairly apparent. They were quite bullish about that though, Phil. Did, you know, like to the point where they're saying... You know, we've made this decision because it offers a better pathway to the first team for the, the young players, but does, does I think, it stack up? I think at that point, there was a lot of faith that they would be okay. And in fairness, I think us three have probably said all season, we, we think they'll have enough. That, you know, that the four games now for that argument to be vindicated, although at best it's going to be vindicated by a whisker. And I've said in this piece, you know, people who think that Leeds have kind of come to a gunfight armed with knives have pretty much been proven correct. You know, it has been it is going to be a very, very close run thing one way or the other. It is hindsight to look back and or it is hindsight to say that Furpo and James have not had the, the effect that you would have wanted and, and really elevated leads. But I think regardless of the fact that it's hindsight, you have to still look at that and say that that's the case. So you have to ask questions about it and ask questions about what you do differently or whether there are ways in which you can scout players or analyse players that will allow them to make more of an impact that for me is the is the big thing it's it's not the money spent it's what that money has done to the team do you think there are going to be questions asked of Orta come the summer there are going to be questions asked of everybody and and there have to be i mean there'll be que- there have been questions asked of of Bielsa and i don't think you can exonerate him from the form this season but the fact is Bielsa's gone you know Bielsa's paid for this with his job so there's been a cost to him and if there is blame to be apportioned it's been applied to him because he, you know 
He has been sacked. But it can't simply be about him. In the same way as I don't think it can be about one person and it can't be about one factor. It's, it's multiple things have gone on here that have meant that the squad hasn't been able to compete in the way that, that it really needed to. You have to be honest and address that when, when the time comes. Well, it's do or die time. Phil, over the next seven days, we've got Arsenal away Sunday, Chelsea at home on Wednesday. Um, next week, we're going to come in on Thursday and we'll reflect on uh, on the Chelsea game. It's a very important week, isn't it? Another, yes. another one. And to be fair, we're essentially previewing the whole of the remainder of the season now, aren't we? Yeah, um, I tend to think of do or die time as you either win or draw this weekend or your toast. So not quite there at the moment. But to go back to the very beginning of this podcast, it's it's got to start coming now, you know, more results. It's kind of strange because I'm I'm saying that as if Leeds haven't been getting results and they have. It just feels as if they haven't because of the way the table's gone. And and even though they actually built up some pretty good momentum um, results-wise under Marsh, they've been sucked back in, as I say, mainly because of Burnley's form more than anything. Everton have had results here and there, but it's it's Burnley who, who have really got it together with three wins in a row. These are difficult games coming up. Arsenal away and Chelsea at home. I guess what you have to hope from Lee's point of view, is that Arsenal are feeling a little bit twitchy about fourth place. Chelsea have very much one eye, if not two eyes, on the FA Cup final. And something tells me for for Tuchel, given that they should from here finish top six, I can't see them failing to do that. For Tuchel, the FA Cup will matter to him in a big way because that's all they've got this season. I know they want to qualify for the Champions League, but that is the silverware, you know, that is the trophy. They've been in and out. Chelsea, they've been nothing like the teams that City and, and Liverpool are and they were very poor at, at Goodison last weekend and when all said and done, I, I think Tuchel will look at this as a decent season for them but I don't think it's necessarily been any more than that. So you kind of hope on, on that evening with Ellen Road packed and Chelsea probably weakened that there's a, an opportunity there. Arsenal I don't feel massively confident about except to say that Arsenal can be flaky and Arsenal can go from winning games to losing games quite easily and for all the praise that's been showered on Arteta this season they've lost 11 times you know in fourth and they've they've lost 11 games which is a, a fair old number so it can be done it can be done and and you know Leeds, Leeds have got to turn up for these and I think we look stronger now relative to how we looked when we played them at Christmas at home when everybody feared the worst when we had, were absolutely decimated by injuries and I know we've got a lot of injuries now but it feels like, given the resilience we've shown against the likes of Man City and digging it out a little bit, that we should be up for it a little bit more. We should be able to compete that bit better, which is what you need to do as an uh, you know as, a, as an absolute basic minimum, isn't it? That game was a, a write-off in December. There was uh, there was no chance of Leeds getting anything from that because I've never seen a squad so decimated. I mean, at a time where other clubs were asking for postponements because a handful of players had COVID. I forget exactly now how many leads had out, but the, the bench was unbelievable that day and it had got to the point of almost picking people out of the crowd to say, look, we need nine subs. You, you fancy giving it a bash? It, it was that thin. So they, they weren't going to get anything from that game in the same way that the, the Liverpool game that was postponed on Boxing Day was was set up for a, a really heavy beating. And okay, when the postponed game came around, it was a heavy beating anyway, but that really felt like the peak of the injury crisis. It was just horrendous at, at that point. It's... Not so bad now. It's not great. You know, there's still still players missing. We haven't heard any more about Cooper and his knee injury, although it does sound to me like it's not that bad. And I 
can't say for sure, but I wouldn't at this stage really out with the Arsenal game. I think there's a possibility that he might be okay for that. Um, and they do they do need him there. I think again, a little bit like City, it's going to need compact defending. It's going to need discipline, which was definitely there in open play on Saturday. But obviously, the set piece undid everything early on. The performance is going to have to try and do what it can to play on any nerves that Arsenal have. Um, and it is tight. You know, there isn't much between them and Spurs. Uh, it's still very much up for grabs. I think Man United are probably out of that that race now, a few points back. But yeah, it's um, the, the odds are, are heavily on a home win, I think. But if you force me to predict a decent result from this one, I'd feel ha- far happier to than I did last weekend. Yeah, there are levels to this game, as the saying goes. I mean, you look at the table, though, you've got Man City on 83 points. Liverpool on 82 and then down to Chelsea at 66, Arsenal at 63. It's there in the numbers, isn't it? There was a really good thing on on Twitter this week and this was originally done way back when it said the Premier League is basically top two, Chelsea, everybody else and a bottom two. And do you know what? It hasn't really changed that much, has it? It is is a bit like that. City and Liverpool are just light years out in front. They they really are. In the same way as I think Watford and Norwich are, are a long way behind. Arsenal are a kind of odd team. I think it's that thing about the hope that kills really at Arsenal, isn't it? I think they constantly want to think that they're getting it together and that they're they're starting to creep back towards being a really competitive side. But I still think that the distance from them to the top two is vast. But but I suppose for them, Champions League football is as much as they can look for. Um, aside from you know, aside from cup competitions and trophies. That is all you'd expect and Arteta would be happy with that. I do feel like they've maybe been slightly fortunate with the the form of Man United this year. You've got you've got to feel that next season with a new manager and some new signings in, they're probably going to push for fourth place a lot harder than they have this year because the thing is they've had an absolutely awful season and they're only five points behind them. <laughs> well, you, you, you wouldn't say that Tottenham have had a particularly good season, um, but they're in fifth and they have a chance of fourth and I think that kind of sums it up that there isn't really a strong and an outright top four at all there's a there's a top three I suppose you could say but even Chelsea aren't miles clear um, of the, the teams below them they've they've got enough in hand I think to make sure that they get there but it's um, it's kind of open season for those last two Champions League places particularly fourth and you're right it, you know if Arsenal are the same team next season they might find that they're not in the running because Manchester United have improved Chelsea have got better whatever it is perhaps Tottenham as well um, although <laughs> can never tell from week to week whether Conte is staying or going and, and what's going to happen there. But they, they do need to win this Arsenal. And it might be that, you know, results over the weekend put a little bit of pressure on them and change things. But equally, that could be true of Leeds as well. I think one of the things I've realised over the last couple of years is that maybe Bielsa's football, because it succeeded last season, masked the realities of the Premier League to a certain extent. And that gulf between teams that have just come up and the very top ones and never was that more in focus than when we played Man City at the weekend. And that's, I think maybe that's partly where the singing and the defiance came from, just seeing just how far you have to go to succeed in the Premier League. The gap between the bottom and the top now is, it almost feels more set up like a cup game, doesn't it? In, yeah. in something like that. Whereas yeah. I get the feeling, I know I know that you had very dominant Man United and Arsenal teams in the in the kind of mid to late 90s, but they they didn't tend to finish on a hundred points. No, they, which they is, were they were beatable, weren't which they? is the kind of the kind of level that Man City and Liverpool have set in recent years. Is that you can get to those outrageous points targets. And Mourinho's Chelsea, when they this suddenly had the wealth of Russia to spend on it, they were kind of hitting ninety points. But that that's not what it used to be like. And yeah. so there were there were winnable games in there. I don't, I don't know if times played a trick on me, but it, it seems to me that 
they didn't just used to stick four or five goals p- past clubs as a matter of course. I mean, City and Liverpool, City in particular, I I wouldn't ever want to get into the argument of who's the better team out of those two because I think you can, can shout the odds either way, really. Uh, but City in particular, when they get going, it is just that thing of, you know, 4-0, 5-0, 7-0 as it was against Leeds. And that, I think, is what, exemplifies the golf more than anything it's not just the points differential it's the it's the ability of them to just churn through easy big wins without seemingly breaking sweat so you're right when you when you try to decide in your head what counts as success and and what you should be aiming for there are limits for virtually everybody aren't there with a, a small number of exceptions you feel quite often as if the top four's not unreachable but miles away even getting into europe is not simple and, and not straightforward and it's never never going to be but it needs masses of perseverance and it needs a lot of investment and it leads, needs kind of a sustained build up over a period of time to to get you there unless it just happens to click in, in you know in the blink of an eye um, it is it is a strange strange league yeah, so when you look at Arsenal then you're talking about the games they've lost they've lost 11 as you said they've played 34 they lose one in every three games it never used to be like that did it in the top four like you were saying, you had a number of teams that'd be bunched up at least duking it out for, for the top spot. Maybe they pull away towards the end, but it's, and, become, and they, it's become like Scotland, doesn't it? And they go through this cycle of win games, Arteta's great, Arteta's, you know, starting to get a grip of it all, starting to get on top of it all. Then they go through a run of defeats and Arteta's useless, you know, we need to change, need to get rid of him, this, that and the other. It, it It's just cyclical down there. And yes, they might get into the Champions League, but I think, we can all safely say that they won't do very much in the Champions League. They don't look like a team who are built to go particularly far in that. Although they, they might sign players over the summer and, and no doubt they, they will try and change things a little bit. Quite a lot of the division is much of a muchness and I certainly feel that in the middle part of it. I kind of feel that even though, though Leeds are where they are, if they were up on 40 points with Villa, Brentford and Southampton, there are games where they could have taken more points. I don't think you would you would feel like they were frauding their way into those positions. It just seems to me that there are seven, eight, nine clubs who at any one time could be interchangeable. You know, Brighton have found a bit of form, but Brighton were dreadful for a little while and, and had gone from looking like a team who were kind of knocking on the door of Europe or the, the top half to a team who were going to sink into the, the bottom half. That's that's kind of how it is. Since January, the, the only team, you know, lower down the table who've really, really been on it consistently, certainly since the end of January, has been Newcastle. I think... Um... Against Man City, I had the thought that we missed the first season of the Premier League. I've not at all enjoyed the second season of it. So that's when you start to, I've been talking this week about being in the bargaining stage of grief, thinking, well, maybe the championship's not that bad as well. Because <laughs> I've written down here, Premier League is boring because it's not like it's a non-contact sport. So it's become less and less competitive because the, the ones at the top are pulling further and further away. It's harder to bridge that gap. They've turned it into this massive corporate spectacle the referees are refereeing how they do. You know, VAR can add misery to that, taking out a lot of the physicality of it. So a lot of the time, there's not a lot to get behind, is there? It's quite, it's quite hard. It's quite a hard thing to love. I think there is the risk, though, that that starts to filter down into the championship as well because of parachute payments. I mean, Fulham this season have scored 106 goals, 106 goals, and they're on. Just looking at the table here, 90 points. You know, so they they've won the division at straight. They came down last season. Easily, easily placed to come back up. Bournemouth as well, pretty recently relegated, were promoted after beating Forest earlier in the week. It's actually, I mean, the, the the run for the playoffs in the Championship has been pretty fascinating this season. It's been so tight. 
Um, and it's it's down to sort of last day shootout between Sheffield United, Luton, and and Middlesbrough. So the, you know the, there'll be something to watch there. So it's not it's not as if it, it's lost it completely in the EFL, but the money that the money that's sucked up by clubs when they're in the Premier League is definitely starting to affect the Championship as well. And I, I think people have to be honest in saying that there is a risk that every year in the Championship you're going to have a Fulham who come down and are just considerably better than everybody else because they're able to finance a player like Mitrovic or whoever else. And it means that they, they kind of run away with it. As far as, um, you know, it was better in the Championship is concerned. Uh, it's not. I hate it. I hate that as well. <laughs> yeah, we were all delighted to get away from it. And when we have that first Tuesday night trip to Swansea, um, but you do, know. Do you not think it's true though, Phil, that the journey is often better than the destination where football's concerned? Where, well, where everything's concerned. Uh, <laughs> Let's be honest. Um, I don't know. Like if if you've ever sort of driven home from Millwall on a Saturday night and been <laughs> detoured through Melton Mowbray, the destination is definitely better than the than the journey. But I think Leeds are probably a great example of that. That it was the journey under Bielsa that was was absolutely amazing. Um, it was great to get to the destination, and actually mixing it properly in the Premier League last season was fantastic too, and and really compelling. But I think. I think a lot of people felt after Bielsa was sacked that that was that was the thing, wasn't it? It'd been the it had been the, the the kind of electricity of hoping it would happen, seeing it happen, of it all coming together was what you'll remember more than anything. Yeah, and and in that respect, I think that's why Leeds were incredibly lucky to have him because a lot a lot of clubs, even when they go up, don't really have that. And back to the games, then these two games this week, we've gone from Arsenal, where we were completely uncompetitive in the home fixture. And I'm trying to get hope out of the return like this week. Chelsea was a weird one because that's one of the games where we really, really performed well earlier this season, didn't we? Albeit lost. Well, that's a story I've just seen, um, admittedly from the mail, just uh, just out in the last last half hour or so. Chelsea are in danger of Premier League expulsion. Yeah, is what it's saying. So that's fine. Kick them out. We stay up. <laughs> Lovely uh, job. Yeah, they they, <laughs> they finish bottom. Jobs are good, and on we go. I thought Leeds were absolutely robbed at Stamford Bridge. That was um, that penalty, pathetic. That wasn't it. Well, it's that thing where you can make an argument for that being a penalty because Clake has not got the ball and has has kicked his heel. Unfortunately, you could also find many other instances where it's been a very similar challenge. There was one in a Leeds game which would have been in Leeds' favour. I can't remember now exactly what it was that wasn't given. And some, well, there was Dan James at Newcastle, for example, as well. Is, is a good one. Um, but somebody did the comparison on Twitter. What's the difference between this? The answer is the difference is nothing. The difference um, is, is it was it was Chelsea on the TV. Or the difference is whoever was sat in the VAR studio going, no, it's nothing. Like know, nothing. Dean. Well, you said that. The funny thing about that Chelsea game was that Leeds had had that dodgy, dodgy game against Brentford where they'd got a point in injury time through Bamford. Um, it was Mike and, Dean at Newcastle, I should stress, by the way. Oh, at Newcastle, yeah. yeah. I can't remember who it was down at, down at Chelsea. But that I think that Brentford game had rattled people slightly because it was very nearly a defeat to the sort of side who you thought you should be beaten, you know, and, and you expected to finish finish above. So we went to Chelsea and it was that run of Chelsea, City away, Arsenal at home, thinking this isn't going to be much fun, this. And they were really good. They were really good at Stamford Bridge. The system worked. They were in the game right the way through. They were better than Chelsea, I felt. They had that great goal from Gilhart that looked... And actually, after that, I thought they were going to win it. You know, I, I thought I thought Leeds were in position to win it. And then you have the challenge on Rudiger and um, Chelsea scored the penalty and, and win the game. 
That, I think, has been Chelsea for quite a lot of the season. You can get at them and they are definitely beatable. There, there are points in Chelsea if you if you play well and you compete. And I, I'm just really hoping that the circumstances are helpful for that one because of the FA Cup final coming, because Chelsea have been iffy lately, that it might be maybe a game where Leeds can do something. Where they're just not quite 100% focused. Because, I mean, yeah. I, didn't, I didn't see the game, the Everton-Chelsea game of the weekend, I should say, but what did you make of them there? I thought they were poor in the same way that I thought Man United at Goodison were extremely poor. And there's no point, no point kind of making making excuses, but it's definitely helped Everton that in two games that you would probably have had down as away wins, the, the performances against them have been fairly abysmal. A massive result for them, it really was. And that, I think, more than Burnley at Watford shaped the weekend. You, you, what we saw, how bad Watford are. So you, you thought that Burnley would have a reasonable chance of getting something down there. Had Everton lost, the gap would still be five points. And I, I, I would have been perfectly happy to have come out of the weekend with a five-point gap still there. It's the fact that, that Chelsea went there, played as they did, got beaten, and it and it drops to two. And suddenly, you you know, all bets are, all bets are off. But you can't, as I say, you can't take points from Chelsea. They do get on runs where they win a lot of games. They do have some very, very good players. But they're certainly not a complete team in the way that Liverpool and City are. Probably not prudent to make uh, predictions at this stage, is it? I mean, on, no. our, on our show this week, we just went for... We, all three of us went for a win because we don't know what else to do anymore. No, no, this is it. They were trying desperately on the athletic um, athletic podcast to, to tempt us into predictions about who was going down and we all resolutely refused. Although Dan, who presents it, said the last person who appears on this podcast on Zoom before we started, before we start recording, is taking the team down. And it was Paddy Boyland from Everton, so you can all <laughs> relax. I mean, interestingly, Flo, one of the presenters on it, said to me, I'll be honest, I don't really think Leeds are in this. I think Leeds are fine. And I said to her, you have to be joking. I mean, <laughs> all three are in this, it, you know, to the same degree and in a in a big, big way. How can we not be in it but Burnley are, given they're, uh, given I, they're above I, us? I don't, she just said, I just think Leeds will be fine. I look at Leeds and I think they'll be okay. I think they'll be, I think they'll be fine. And I said to her... Imagine being able to think that. I, that's what I said. I said, um, you know, I'm hoping wow. you're Nostradamus, man. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that is the perfect place to leave it, isn't it? Just hope let's, you know. let's predict nothing. <laughs> we'll, we'll predict nothing. We'll make some vague predictions. Put me in a book. And in a couple of hundred years, people can read it and uh, <laughs> decide whether we were right or not. Well, there you go. That wraps up the Phil Hay show for for this week. Uh, I dare say next week we'll uh, we'll show us exactly where this season is going, won't it? By the time we sit down next week, or it won't. We've said it, that all the time. It probably, it probably won't. Will it? We'll probably get to next Thursday, and it'll be a mishmash in the same way as it is now. It's it's so difficult now not to think that the last day of the season is where this is going to. This is going to shake down. Oh, joy. Oh, oh yes. <laughs> yeah, we'll be back next week then to reflect on Chelsea and uh, to preview Brighton. And uh, you can tweet us at the Phil Hay Show. You can also subscribe to The Athletic Pound a Month for six months, theathletic.com forward slash Leeds Pod. Cross your fingers, cross your toes. We'll be back next week. The Phil Hay Show.